0: Hello, and welcome to the Lake Forest Church Huntersville Sermon Podcast. We are a community of skeptics, spiritual explorers, and longtime followers of Christ. To learn more about who we are as a church and how you can get connected, visit lakeforest.org. Well, good morning, Lake Forest. My name is Mitch. I'm the executive pastor, and I get to uh, be with you this morning. Uh, And it is the beginning of 2020. We are less than three weeks in to 2020. It's hard to believe uh, that we're already that far. But the fun part about that is we are doing a series, uh, if you're brand new and joining us, uh, January, we did a series. We're doing this series called Start. Why? Because that's what you do in January. I, today, a part of this series, am preaching on starting again. Why? Because that's what you do the third week. Because if we're honest, most of us have stopped doing what we started already. Some of you, uh, some of all of us, have uh, started this amazing diet, really, right here in the beginning of January, and two weeks in, and that's being generous, many of you have already ruined it. But that whole pack of Oreos made it worth it, doesn't it? Some of you uh, teenagers, you went back to school here in January and you thought, okay, I'm starting again and I'm starting with an A plus, but already you failed that pop quiz and you now have a 49, okay? So you're trying to start again. Some of you, you had the goal of reading through the entire Bible this year, but those genealogies in chapter five of Genesis just threw it all out the door. And so you're trying to figure out how do I start again? Some of you start the year being a happier person. Your goal is that I'm just going to be a happier person this year. But somebody in your family or one of your coworkers did something that just crossed the line. And every night you're lying in bed thinking about how you're going to get them back and how, because they ruined your goal of being happier. Some of you have the goal of making your relationships better in 2020 with a friend, with a spouse, with your family. But you made a poor decision. And something you know that has the chance of destroying that relationship or already has destroyed that relationship. And you're wondering, how do I start again? That's the question we're asking today. How do you start again? Especially when you feel you did something that has just ruined everything. We're learning how to start again from the life of King David. That's who we're tracking during this series. Uh, the one that God calls a man after God's own heart. You can actually get to know him a lot more, and I encourage you uh, to go back home if you have not had a chance to just read first and second Samuel of the Old Testament just to really get to know David and his life. Today we're going to continue to learn from his life on how to start again. If Kelly can tell a joke, I can too. Two men walk into a bar. And they come and they sit at the bar, and the bartender looks at them and says, I'm God, and I'm happy to give you whatever you want to drink if I'm pleased with how you've spent your day. So, boys, tell me, how'd you spend your day? The first man says, my name is King Saul. Okay? I'm the first king of all of Israel. Now, today, I broke two of your commands. One was I didn't wait long enough when you told me to wait. The second, you told me to kill somebody, but because of greed, I decided not to kill them. So I was impatient and I was greedy, but I didn't kill anyone. The second man said, my name is King David. I'm the second king of all of Israel. Today hasn't been a good day. I had an affair with a woman. I got her pregnant. I didn't want people to find out, so I had her husband murdered. So people would think he got her pregnant before he died. To make matters worse, I made people think that I'm kind of a a very kind king. So I took her in, I made her my wife, and I loved the baby. So God looked at them both, said, hmm. He put one of the glasses back on the shelf. He looked at David and said, David, what can I get you to drink? Sounds like a joke, doesn't it? Well, of course, I told it like a joke, (laughs) but it's true, except for the part of God being the bartender. All the other parts are true, but you hear this story, and you go, you're joking me. Really? David's the one who got the drink? Today, we're going to dig into this story, but before, I'm going to ask, I'm going to assume something. I'm going to assume that sitting in this room that there's no one that has done anything to the extent of having an affair and then having the spouse of the person you had an affair with murdered. Now, I'm not saying that couldn't be in this room, but I'm going to assume (laughs) that it's not. But here's the other thing I know. There's some of you sitting in your chairs this morning who actually believe that what something you have done is to that level. And you carry a weight day in and day out thinking, I might not have done something like that, but boy, what I have done feels as horrible as that. And I want you to hear the same thing I want everybody in this room to hear this morning. I want you to hear one thing there is nothing that you have done that the death of Jesus Christ can't forgive. And there is nothing that you feel is over, my whole life is over, there is nothing that the life of Jesus Christ can't start again. So regardless of what you may have done in your life that makes you feel that everything is ruined, everything is over, I blew it, the life of Jesus Christ can help you start again. So I hope you'll grab a hold of that this morning. And we're gonna learn this from the life of David, but we're gonna also learn from the life of Saul Why many of us allow our lives to continue to spiral down and never start again? So that's where we're going. Let me help you to understand this story of David and Saul. In the Old Testament, the people of God, they're known as the Israelites. Israel is called to be a humble and obedient people if they want to remain in God's blessing. Yet over and over, they're arrogant. They're disobedient towards God. And they come to a place of saying that they don't want God to be king anymore. Instead, what they want is they want a man to be king. And so they tell God's representative, a guy named Samuel, they tell him this. And so Samuel says, okay, then we'll make a man king. And so he appoints Saul to be king. Now Saul was 30 years old when he became king. He was a good looking, tall guy, very athletic, very smart, top of his class, always number one in everything he did. All of his life, just the greatest at it. But sometime after he appoint, is appointed as king, Samuel tells him some direct orders before the people of Israel going into battle. And these are, this is what he says in 1 Samuel 10. Go down ahead of me to Gilgal. I will surely come down to you to sacrifice burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. But you must wait seven days until I come to you and tell you what you are to do. Okay. Pretty simple plan, go down, wait for me. Saul and his army head to Gilgal, but the Philistines, these are the people they're about to go into battle with, they start coming closer. His men start freaking out. Saul starts freaking out. Day seven comes, and Samuel hasn't arrived yet. It's early in the day, and so Saul decides that I'm going to go ahead and offer the burnt offerings, and as soon as he does this, then Samuel arrives. And when Samuel arrives, here's what he says in chapter 13. What have you done? Asked Samuel. Saul replied, when I saw that the men were scattering and that you did not come at the set time and that the Philistines were assembling at Milkmash, I thought now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal. And I have not sought the Lord's favor, so I felt compelled to offer burnt offerings. You've done a foolish thing, Samuel said. You've not kept the command of the Lord. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now, your kingdom won't endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, appointed him ruler of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. So Saul's impatience ruined the opportunity for the kingdom to endure. It could have lasted for all time, but God, because of his impatience, says, I will remove your kingdom, and I'm going to give it to someone who's seeking my heart. The second event for Saul happens a couple of chapters later. Saul and the Israelites are about to go into battle with the Amalekites. And this is the command that God gives him, 1 Samuel 15 now go attack the amalekites totally destroy all that belongs to them don't spare them put to death men women children infants cattle sheep camels donkeys on and on he's basically saying destroy everyone am i clear sam Saul. it's pretty clear Now, let me encourage you, don't get too wrapped up in the fact of why would God ask him to destroy all of this. That's a whole other sermon. There's a whole other topic on that. God had very good reason to tell him to destroy everything, and he made it very clear to Saul, destroy everything. Let's read the rest of the story. Verse 7, Saul attacked the Amalekites all the way from Havilah to Shur near the eastern border of Egypt. He took Agag, king of Amalekites, alive, and all his people he totally destroyed with the sword. But Saul and his army spared Agag and the best of the sheep and cattle, the fat calves and lambs, everything that was good. These they were unwilling to destroy completely, but everything that was despised and weak, they totally destroyed. Early in the morning, Samuel got up, went to meet Saul, but he was told, well, Saul's gone down to Carmel. There he set up a monument in his own honor and has turned and gone on down to Gilgal. When Samuel reached him, Saul said, The Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's instructions. Love this part of the story. But Samuel said, Huh, what then is this bleeding of sheep I hear? What is this lowing of cattle that I hear? Saul answers, The soldiers... The soldiers brought them from the Malachites. Well, they they spared the best of the sheep and the cattle uh, to sacrifice to the Lord your God, but we totally destroyed the rest. Hmm, interesting, isn't it? Kind of makes you think. What is that? Butter. Butter. Yeah. And what? Since when does butter go in your hair? Mason yeah. put butter on his hair. Yeah, but your hands are dirty too. Yeah. So you put butter in his hair too? No. Where did you put the butter? Um, in the fridge. It, but it's all over your hands, and I had to throw the tub away. Oh. Yeah. Why is there butter on your hands? Toys. Oh, so you make pancakes with butter? Yeah. Hmm. <laughs> Saul gives the answer of a two-year-old with butter on his hands, with the soldiers. But, well, we did it to sacrifice. First Samuel 15. Enough, Samuel said to Saul. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he's rejected you as king. See, Saul denies it again. And then he finally confesses, verse 24. Then Saul said to Samuel, I've sinned. I violated the Lord's command and your instructions. I was afraid of the men, so I gave in to them. Now I beg you, forgive my sin. Come back with me, so that I may worship the Lord. Samuel refuses to go back. Saul keeps pleading, and he does go, but after that, God has nothing to do with his kingship. Okay, so let's compare that story, a man who's impatient and greedy with David's story. The man who God says, I found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He'll do everything I want him to do. So David actually comes to work for Saul, and he does really well. He uh, does amazing things, and the people of Israel are actually falling more in love with him. Saul's getting bitter now because uh, David is a lot more successful, and the people are loving him. And so the rest of of Saul's life is actually lived out in bitterness and hatred toward uh, David, and he's trying to kill David, and he's got David on the run everywhere. David has a couple opportunities actually to kill Saul, but God says don't, and so David honors him as king and doesn't. But then Saul, in his bitterness and anger, builds so much that at the end of his life, he actually throws himself on his own sword committing suicide out of his pride and his greed that was never confessed. David goes on, becomes king. He has an amazing kingship, very successful. God gives him everything, everything that he ever wanted, but he got lazy. 2 Samuel chapter 11. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab. So when David should have been out for war, he sends Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed. He walked around on the roof of the palace, and from the roof he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. And David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, She is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him. He slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanliness. And then she goes back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I'm pregnant. David's next steps, what he does is he sends for her husband. He says, bring him back from the war. He tells his husband, go back home, go be with your wife. But then he finds out, he sends her husband back to be with him. But the husband doesn't go because all the people are at war. And he doesn't feel like, out of loyalty, that he should be with his wife. And so he doesn't. And we continue. How could I go to my house to eat and drink and make love to my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. Verse 14. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab, sent it with Uriah. In it, he wrote, put Uriah out in front where the fighting is fiercest. Then withdraw him so he will be struck down and die. So David gets his wife pregnant and then puts him on the very front lines in order to murder him. After he's killed, David takes Bathsheba into his home, marries her, she gives birth to a son, and no one knows anything. By the way, this is a story we're teaching your kids in Kid Tropolis today. Good luck, parents, when you pick them up. <laughs> So a good bit of time now passes. David's comfortable again. He believes he's gotten away with it. And then in chapter 12, his best friend Nathan comes to him because God reveals to Nathan what David has done. And here's the rest of that story. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Nathan is talking to David. I anointed you, king of Israel. I delivered you from the land of Saul I gave your master's house to you, your master's wives to your arms. I gave you all Israel and Judah. And if all this had been too little, I'd have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword. You took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despise me. You took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I'm going to bring calamity to you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who's close to you. He'll sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret. I'm going, they're going to do this in broad daylight before all of Israel. And then David says to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan replies, the Lord's taken away your sin." But you are not going, to, and you are not going to die. But because by doing this you have shown utter contempt for the Lord, the son born to you will die. So David confesses to what Nathan accused him. David's sin is removed by God. But as soon as Nathan leaves, David's son gets ill. And David spends the next seven days on his knees, in sackcloth, fasting and praying every single day, Lord have mercy. And on day seven, David's son dies. And here's what we hear right after he dies. Verse 20, David gets up from the ground. After he had washed, he put on lotions and changed his clothes. He went into the house of the Lord and he worshiped. Then he went to his own house, and at his request, they served him food, and he ate. His attendants asked him, why are you acting like this? While the child was alive, you fasted and wept, but now the child is dead, you get up and you eat? David answers, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. I thought, who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me and let the child live, but now that he is dead, why should I go on fasting? Can I bring him back again? I'll go to him, but he won't return to me. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba. He went to her and made love to her. She gave birth to a son. They named him Solomon, and the Lord loved him. It's a crazy story, isn't it? When David thinks it's all over, when no one knows his sin is found out, he confesses, he lives through the consequences, he starts again. And the rest of David's life is filled with blessing. It's not all easy, but God's hand is still on him. So what's the difference? Why is it that a man like Saul, who's impatient and greedy, the Lord removes his hand, but a man like David, who has committed adultery and murder, God keeps his hand on him? Why was David able to start again? Yet Saul's life spiraled down, filled with more and more misery. There are a few things I want you to walk away with in this, and here's the first thing. Your ability to start again has nothing to do with what you have done. If we compare the two behaviors, Saul's and David's, I'm going to believe that in this room, we're all going to agree that David's behavior was far worse But what we learn from this is that starting again has nothing to do with how bad you think the sin is. If you are blaming the level of your actions as the reason that you can't start again, the good news is that no matter what you have done, it can be forgiven. You can start again. But here are the things that David did that Saul refused to do. The first part of starting again Own your sin instead of deflecting it. When Saul was confronted by Samuel, he blamed his army. Twice he explains to Samuel why it was somebody else's fault. Now, David was confronted by Nathan, and he owns it. Now, he had plenty of reasons. He could have said, well, Bathsheba shouldn't have been up there on the roof. He could have said, well, it's been busy at work. I was stressed. I just let my guard down. It won't happen again. I'm the king. I can do whatever I want. He could have said, well, things at home, they just haven't been like they should. If things at home were better, then I wouldn't have done this. No. He didn't blame anyone. The only words out of his mouth, I have sinned against the Lord. Many of us never start again Because we're spending most of our time trying to excuse and trying to blame others instead of just saying, it is my fault, no one else's, I have sinned against the Lord. If you're going to start again, it has to begin with owning your fault, not deflecting it. The second, you've got to feel the weight of your sin instead of discarding it. When Samuel confronted Saul, Saul was more concerned about what everybody else thought. He wanted Samuel to come back with him, mainly so the people would just keep following. He wasn't, he didn't care about what he had done to the Lord. He's far more concerned about his relationship with the people that he messed and he missed the weightiness of what he had done before God. David acknowledged, I've sinned against the Lord. David was a man after God's own heart. He knew the weight of his sin, and he knew that it could end his relationship with God. The main thing he was concerned about was, what am I in God like? We discard the weight of our sin many times, not realizing that our sin breaks the heart of God. Have you been willing to acknowledge this? Is your relationship with God that important? Many of us will also take the other right route of, well, well, it's our sin. I said I'm sorry, and, you know, I sin because I'm human. We're only human. S- human sin. What if David had had that attitude? What if David had said, well, I'm only human. I'm sorry. God will forgive me. He knows I sin. He'd simply move on from the fact that he destroyed the marriage of one of his most loyal and faithful soldiers He would move on from the fact that his soldier lost his life. He would move on from the fact that he destroyed Bathsheba's life, filled it with pain, the pain that he now gives to his other wives as well and how they'll be defiled. And now his son will also die. You see, God knows that we all sin. That's why Jesus was sent to die on the cross to pay the price our sin deserved. When we just keep right on sinning and not understanding its effect, we are basically saying that all Jesus' death did was give us more permission to sin. And we miss that it freed us from staying in our sin. So don't simply discard your sin. Fill the weight. The third Confess to heal your sin instead of dismissing it. You see, Saul just wanted the problem to go away. He didn't care about his pride and desire for everyone around him to like him and his constant drive to be the greatest. He didn't care if that changed. He just wanted his circumstances to change. He said, I'm sorry, now come back with me, just fix this. David spent seven days on his knees in sackcloth, confessing his sin to the Lord, asking God to show mercy. If you want to actually get a hold of David's heart, Psalm 51 is his prayer over and over before the Lord after these events happen. And you see him just begging more than anything, Lord, cleanse me, make me whiter than snow I want you to cleanse me, get rid of my sin, make me white again. When our children are small, uh, we unfortunately, uh, and I think we do this for good intentions, but unfortunately, we train our children to say, I'm sorry. And if you say, I'm sorry, everything will be fixed real quick. Parents, forcing your children to say, I'm sorry, doesn't help them to learn remorse It doesn't help them to understand and embrace the consequences. It just simply gives them magic words to make it all disappear. And then we grow up still thinking, if I just say, I'm sorry, God, you'll forgive me. If I just say, I'm sorry to somebody that I've hurt, well, they're supposed to forgive me. It'll just go away. But we don't grab a hold of the weight of our sin. God does forgive. But our confessions to God and to others only come when we realize that my behavior and the weightiness of it and how it affects others, that's got to change. The role of confession is to heal our sin. It's not to just dismiss it. The final point, embrace the consequence of your sin instead of denying it. Many times we believe that if we own our wrongdoing, we feel the weight of it, we confess it, then no more pain should come. Mitch, you gave me three steps to do, and if I do those three steps, then people should forgive, the consequences should go away. Isn't that how this happens? We think forgiveness just removes the consequences of our sin. David learned that his sin was removed. God forgave him, but his behavior still had consequences And these consequences are a result of our sin, but they're also there to help us heal from our sin. Just because you said, I'm an addict, it doesn't mean that your body escapes damage from the years that you've been addicted. Just because you said, I had an affair, it doesn't mean that your marriage won't end. Just because you confess to a lack of anger control, it doesn't mean that your relationship with your child is going to be fixed. Just because you admit it to a poor decision, it doesn't mean that your friend won't carry animosity against you for years. Our confession doesn't take away consequences. We have to embrace them. We can't deny them. And when you embrace them, though, it opens the door To starting again. Saul's life was miserable because he'd never owned the consequences of his sin. And because of that, his life was spent making David run. His life was spent in the damage to everyone around him because he was on pins and needles and angry all the time. David embraced the fact that his actions were leading to his son's death. He owned that. He asked God to show mercy. But when God chose not to, he got up, he showered, he changed clothes, he ate, and he began again. Why? Because he knew my sin has consequences. And I'm going to have to live through them. And it didn't bring his son back. But it opened the door for him to live life again. You see, starting again doesn't always mean you get back what was lost. It does mean you don't just keep losing. There are people sitting right beside you that have believed for a long time that you can't confess what you've done. You, can't, you keep denying it, you blame others, or you just hide it. There's no way I can tell anybody what I've done. Because you're thinking you're going to have to go to your grave with that. I want you to know there are people sitting right beside you that used to think that way too. But they owned it. They confessed it. They embraced the consequences of it. And in doing that, they realized that Jesus Christ could heal them and they could start again. Sitting right beside you are marriages that have overcome affairs. Right beside you are families that have overcome addictions. Right beside you are parents and children who are talking because they've overcome anger. Right beside you are families that have recovered from financial hardships because of poor decisions around finances, but getting it right and God healing and starting again. Right beside you are the miracles that only God can do through the blood of Jesus Christ. At the beginning, I told you, there's nothing you've done that the death of Jesus Christ can't forgive. There's nothing that you feel is over that the life of Jesus Christ can't start again. But where's the starting line? Where do you start again? Where's the starting line? Believe it or not, it's not just realizing that you sinned or you made a mistake. That's not the starting line. The starting line for starting again is realizing the grace of Jesus David was reminded of all that God had done for him. He was reminded of the grace and kindness of God and that he chose to sin against the one who loved him the most. This morning, I want you to know that God paid the greatest price of all through the death of his son, Jesus Christ, to be able to say to you, there is nothing you've done that I cannot forgive. And there is nothing you have done that we can't start again. But it begins with you realizing the grace of Jesus and you confessing and owning that. Today, the starting line is the communion table. I believe it's the best starting line to starting again. And so we are going to recognize communion together as the place of remembering the death, the price that was paid, so we can start again. Would you bow your heads? And allow me to just lead us in preparing our hearts for communion. Father, as we sit here and we reflect, there, for many people, there are very vivid and clear things that we feel like we just never been able to start over. Lord Jesus, as we quiet our hearts and prepare our hearts to receive the bread and the cup. May today, as we receive this bread and as we receive this cup, be a place of saying to you, I'm not hiding anymore. I'm not blaming anymore. I'm confessing. So as we come to the table, may we know the fullness of your forgiveness to not give us permission to sin and to keep on, but to free us from these things that we live in bondage to. May your table be a grace to us.